This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano on 77 WABC. It is always such a thrill uh, to be joined by a man who, through his activism, helped define and redefine, quite frankly, the 20th century, and now through his intellectual leadership and providing a guidepost for everybody that seeks a more ethical future, is helping to redefine the 21st century as well. Very pleased to be joined by a veteran consumer advocate, best-selling author, and a three-time independent candidate for president. His latest book is uh, definitely worth checking out. It's called The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress. And it's about a lot more, even if you're not interested in rodents, it's about a lot more than the title suggests. Very pleased to be joined by the one and only Ralph Nader. Mr. Nader, it is always a thrill to talk with you, sir. Thank you very much, Frank. Uh, Let me obviously get your take on the uh, big news that everybody's talking about literally around the war, around the world, and that is the war in Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia invading Ukraine, a lot of lives lost, millions of people forced to flee their homes. Uh, Give me your take on the situation. Well, the invasion obviously was a war crime. Uh, Ukraine didn't threaten Russia at all. Their brothers and sisters, they fought shoulder to shoulder against the Nazi machine that invaded uh, Russia in World War II. They they died together. They went to victory against the Nazis together. Uh, so this is a real tragedy of the first order of magnitude. But from the U.S. point of view, I think Americans are entitled to have a little historical context, which is that under George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, uh, James Baker, who was then Secretary of State, uh, they told Russia when they were uh, asking them to uh, give uh, support for the unification of Germany, which was obviously a touchy subject for Russia, having been invaded twice by mm. Germans on the Western frontier. It was the loss of oh, almost 50 million Russians. The descendants don't forget that. And, and they basically said, you will okay the unification. Uh, and in return, uh, Baker promised uh, 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 the head of Russia at the time that NATO would not try to uh, invite Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, you know, the Eastern European countries, Romania, to join NATO because NATO is a military alliance and it was created basically to stem the Soviet Union from its uh, any of its Western frontier ambitions. Uh, so that is a provocation. And for someone like Putin, who has been harboring uh, a huge, um, shall we say, anger over the collapse of the Soviet Union and the lopping off of all these countries like uh, the Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and so forth, that it was uh, a ripe situation for him to say to the Russian people, hey, uh, these guys are uh, near our western border, they got... The missile launchers 100 miles from uh, Russia, from our country in Poland. They got U.S. Uh, military people in these countries advising the military. Uh, you know, we're, we've got a national security problem. Well, it turns out that Biden uh, months ago said uh, that uh, Russia had a, uh, a legitimate security concern and that the U.S. and Western European allies are going to address it. Well, they, they, they kept saying that, but they weren't specific. And what Putin wanted, among other things, was the guarantee that this former part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, would never join NATO. 
Well, Ukraine wouldn't qualify for joining NATO. They have certain conditions for years anyway, and Washington wouldn't give him that guarantee. And he also said, what do you got all these missile launchers ostensibly to uh, to shoot down uh, uh, missiles from Iran, of all things? Uh, can you imagine anything mm. so transparent? Um, they're aimed at us, so you want to back it out. We don't want U.S. military in Eastern Europe. Well, what are we doing in Eastern Europe anyway in Eastern Europe? Uh, so he becomes more belligerent, and uh, he knows the Russian people remember the Western frontier and how they lost 50 million people in two world wars to the German invasion. So he thinks he's secure there, and he is isolated, and he doesn't have much feedback like any dictator, and he was persuaded by his sycophants, and that's what dictators do, they supply, surround themselves with sycophants, um, that uh, Ukraine was going to take uh, be taken easily. A couple weeks, roll in, uh, you got a lot of Russians in eastern Ukraine, uh, living in Ukraine, born in Ukraine, pro-Russian, and uh, then put in a puppet dictatorship, and they'll be have a secure Ukraine on the Russian border. Well, now that the invasion is in, into its third and fourth week, uh, what is the U.S. and Western Europe doing? Well, they're trying to talk to Putin. But, you know, what you do with someone like Putin is you say, look, uh, you made a big mistake, and you're going to be bogged down like we were in Afghanistan, and it's going to be very costly. Uh, Russian soldiers will... Uh, lose their lives, uh, and uh, the Russian people are not going to like that. Uh, we'll, we'll guarantee that there'll never be a Ukraine and a military alliance against you. And and then, you know, the, you start feeling the guy out that way because he's a very dangerous guy to humiliate. Uh, 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 an uninformed dictator who made a big mistake thinking he was going to take Ukraine in a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks, and now he's going to be humiliated in front of his own people. So you don't humiliate a guy like that who's got his finger on six thousand nuclear bombs. Mm. So and, and we've got to now we've got to now get all together, demand a ceasefire, which is a way both sides can sort of back off a little bit and try to negotiate a, a treaty. You've got to have a treaty because the oral agreement from James Baker wasn't worth anything to Putin because it was reneged on. He wants a treaty. And it makes it makes sense to me, your recount, recounting of everything that led us to this point. In terms of President Biden's handling of this situation, he's being urged by uh, establishment politicians on the left and the right and by Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to establish a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. President Biden has resisted that. He's also resisted uh, calls by the Polish to help facilitate the transfer of from the Polish Air Force to the Ukrainian military. Is Biden doing the right thing on both of those? Definitely. Uh, when you have a no-fly zone, that means you've got to shoot down any planes that violate it, which means you have to shoot down Russian planes. That's World War. Mm. You know, that thing, it's just like Sarajevo in World War One. You had an assassination by a 19-year-old of the Archduke in Sarajevo, and the five 
egocentric leaders of Russia, Germany, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, France, England, who knew each other and even had intermarriages, uh, they got their uh, chin out of joint, and one thing led to another, and then you had World War One, where, what, 20 million people were killed, and a lot of U.S. soldiers as well. So this is a tripwire situation. Biden is very, very wise not to further provoke Putin and to basically verbally appear tough. And, of course, he's got these very devastating uh, sanctions, which are going to discomfort the oligarchs who uh, are not going to like what Putin has done because uh, they can't go to Monaco and England the way they used to with all their loot. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so he's he's doing it well, but he's got to be very careful that his uh, strong uh, ver- words do not set anything off. He's, he's not about to provoke uh, Putin militarily. But imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Imagine if our northern border was invaded twice in, in less than 40 years and we lost 50 million people. Uh, and uh, uh, there is a military alliance of all the countries from the south encircling us. Well, what do you think we'd do? Well, it's oh, obvious well, what we'd do. We'd annex them. <laughs> Not just yeah. go to war again. <laughs> we would annex them. We'd turn the Monroe Doctrine into an annexation uh, doctrine. So we, we, Putin is a, a, a bad, vicious dictator, and uh, he's done a lot of bad things. He's enriched himself and his oligarchs, and he's suppressed the uh, Russian people. But you, you don't humiliate a guy who made a bad mistake in terms of uh, his uh, thinking he can take Ukraine and he's bogged down. Uh, he may up the ante. He may provoke something. Well, uh, especially- by the way... Putin, uh, by the way, uh, Biden made a serious error in saying Article 5 means that we have to defend, quote, every inch of NATO territory, end quote. And that is a unlawful assertion, because in Article 5 of the NATO treaty, it says that any decision when a NATO country is attacked, that all the allies can can have to observe constitutional process. And treaties are subordinated to the U.S. Constitution, which says only Congress uh, can declare war. So he cannot say Article 5 compels us to go to war against Putin if one inch, as he put it uh, ineptly, of NATO territory is attacked. He can't do that. He's got to go to Congress for a declaration of war. And uh, we have written a legal letter to President Joe Biden uh, outlining this that's on our website, uh, nader.org. And and, uh, international and constitutional law experts have signed it. You mentioned the issue of sanctions. I know you have called out the United States and its use of sanctions all over the world as being one ineffective and in part actually turning the populations that we're trying to help against the United States government. Do you think that Biden is doing the right thing by increasing sanctions on the on the Russians and also banning the import of Russian oil? Well, first of all, um, If uh, under international law, Frank, if the sanctions aiming at a military purpose have a disproportionate, terrible effect on the civilian population, key, a disproportionate to the military objective 
of these sanctions on civilians throughout Russia, that's a violation of international law, period. So we will see what kind of impacts it's going to have uh, on absolute necessities being imported, medical and others, uh, or other impacts of the sanction. The second thing is we don't know enough about these sanctions. Number one, how tailored are they? So they minimize the impact both on the civilian population in Russia and in the U.S. because gas prices are going up, for example, when you ban uh, 4% of the oil we import from Russia. It tightens the uh, refinery, uh, and that shoots it up disproportionately, as people know, at the gas pump these days. So the question is, how tailored are these sanctions through the banks, uh, and what are we giving the banks in return for losing the, the Russian business? That's something the Wall Street Journal and New York Times should look into. Because you think these banks are saying to Joe Biden, okay, we're going to cut all these uh, huge assets and deposits and transactions and freeze them. Uh, what do we get for it, Joe? And well, the press hasn't looked into that. But if they tailor the sanctions on the oligarchs and they tailor them in ways that will obstruct the military uh, activity uh, and movement, uh, then it will have a minimal effect on the mm. civilian population. But I don't see how they can do that. Mm, uh, no, neither do I. You, you wrote a book a few years ago, which remains one of the best books I've ever read and actually more relevant today than ever. It's called Unstoppable, the emerging left-right alliance to dismantle the uh, corporate state. And in this book, you, you give example after example of how people on the left and on the right can work together to achieve things that just about everybody in the population agrees upon. I read this book all the time. I cite this book all the time. And I love the strategies that you outline in this book for how people on the left and the right can work together. You know, as I listen to the media coverage and read the media coverage of this Russia-Ukraine situation, I'm struck at how rare the perspective that you just offered is in the establishment media. You have a few folks on the right, like Tucker Carlson and Pat Buchanan, who basically say some version of what you say. And you have some folks on the left that do the same things, people like Glenn Greenwald, Aaron Maté, Katrina Vandenhuvel, but it does seem like the media has had very little interest in providing proper context to this Ukrainian situation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, the, the, the media likes to ask war inciting questions because that is what gets ratings. They don't focus on peace. Peace is dull. Peace negotiations are dull. So you have even NPR. They're constantly asking War questions, military theater questions. They're not asking questions about, well, what is the State Department We're supposed to deal in diplomacy? What are they really doing? Uh, why aren't there more vigorous uh, reporting on the U.N., which is trying to call for a ceasefire and, and cover that? No. What NPR has, they've got correspondence in Ukraine, and, and they cover the, the horror and the refugees and the, the, the shortages of food and and health care, and, and, uh, which they have to cover. But it, it, they don't cover the other side. They don't cover the broader, because it's not exciting enough. Mm. And, uh, and that's true for most of the media. You know, when you're on TV, you show an explosion of some military base near Poland that uh, the Russians uh, just bombed. But what are you going to show? A bunch of people around the conference table in the U.N. calling for a ceasefire? 
So it's the same old coverage that preceded the invasion, the criminal invasion of Iraq in, in 2003 uh, and uh, the attack on Libya, which was unauthorized, unappropriated, and undeclared. That was Hillary's war. She wanted it, and she got it against the wishes of Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, Gates. He said, do you know what's going to happen, Hillary, after you topple this guy? Uh, well, look what's happening. Total violence, chaos spilling into five African countries to this day, uh, yeah. uh, you know, 11 years later. So the media has got a lot to, uh, to be called out on. Uh, we're talking with Ralph Nader. You could check out his blog and the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, which is a show that's just terrific. I steal a, a lot of great ideas from it at Nader.org. There's some great stuff on there, including uh, a pathway to buy some of Ralph's uh, books, including The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, which is a fun book, and the Ralph Nader, uh, the Nader Family Cookbook, which is a practical guide to not only making some delicious and nutritious meals, but uh, some of the conversations that can be had around those meals. Ralph, I, I read in the Wall Street Journal recently that even though you've written more books than I can count over the course of the last uh, 60 years or so, you're actually having some difficulty finding a publisher for your latest book. Is that true? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, after criticizing CEOs for so many years, I asked myself, well, what are the standards for good CEOs? So you can judge the bad CEOs and say, hey, these guys are meeting the bottom line. They're making a profit. Uh, these good CEOs, they're uh, treating their workers well. They're uh, respecting the environment. Uh, you know, what, what's your excuse, bad CEO? So I decided to do a book uh, on the 12 CEOs I admired and, and have known over the years. And I was turned down by uh, 12 major publishers. They all said, yeah, you know, it's a well-written book. It's quite compelling, but it doesn't fit with our uh, our catalog of books, whatever that means. It doesn't fit. And so I thought, you know, I, I want the public to know about this. And and uh, I, I called up the Wall Street Journal, and he thought it was a good story, too. So, you know, what is it? It's really strange. When I started out, Frank, you couldn't interest a, public, uh, a big publisher in a corporate crime book. They were didn't want to touch the subject uh, at all. Now, all they want are corporate crime books. They don't want uh, a book on, on good CEOs like, you know, the ones like uh, Patagonia CEO, Yvonne Chouinard, the late CEO of Interface, which is carbon neutral, biggest tile carpet manufacturer in the world. Uh, uh, Ray Anderson, an engineer. Uh, Gordon Sherman, uh, late Gordon Sherman of Midas Muffler. Uh, th these were good CEOs. And uh, one publisher said, hey, uh, I don't want to publish a book by Nader on good CEOs, uh, but I'll publish right away a book by Nader on bad CEOs. <laughs> well, of course, you know I've written my share of those, but sometimes you've got to uh, give publicity to good deeds, especially when they make good profit and they pay their workers well and they respect the environment.
Uh, Ralph, I want to um, ask you about this postal reform bill, but one of the things that strikes me is you've always been uh, the first person and the loudest voice to call out the price gouging of the prescription drug companies. I spoke a week or two ago, uh, actually, I guess it was three weeks ago, before this war in Ukraine began, and everyone was already complaining about inflation. They talk about gas and the price of milk, and uh, you know, my heart goes out to everybody that has to pay 10 cents, 15, 30 cents more for this stuff. But if you look at the inflation that's gone on when it comes to prescription drugs, pharmaceuticals that are actually needed to save people's lives, in many cases developed through the of the NIH, paid for by the taxpayer, that's not something that seems to get nearly as much attention. Is inflation in the pharmaceutical industry something that uh, America has sort of missed the boat on paying attention to? Uh, well, uh, every president going back to Reagan has said they're going to do something about prescription drugs, and they can never get Congress to do anything for three reasons. One is that there are at least 500 full-time lobbyists from the big drug companies on the corridors of Congress all the time, full-time, and they uh, carry with them campaign contributions. That's one. The second is all the presidents who keep saying this, they don't assign enough lobbyists from the White House and the executive branch, Department of Health and Human Services, to really follow up on the presidential oratory, State of the Union addresses. I mean, it's almost comical to see every State of the Union address, Clinton and George W. Bush and so forth, all saying the same thing and nothing ever happens. And the third thing is that the government funds these uh, a lot of these drugs out of the National Institutes of Health. A uh, huge number of drugs were paid for by the U.S. taxpayer in terms of medical research and development at universities and other places. And then they give them free to the uh, commercial drug companies like Pfizer and, uh, and Lilly and, and others. Uh, so they could pull the strings on that. They could say, mm. hey, you're not getting any... Uh, any of these drugs to produce AZT or to produce uh, other drugs, you're not going to get them without paying for it. And that would influence the drug companies. And at the same time, the U.S. Treasury gives these drug companies huge tax credits, which is like writing a check from the Treasury to these companies for doing research. Doing research, that's what their business model is all about. They should pay (laughs) for their own research. And, and, And so, you know, it's all a fraud. They don't really mean what they say. So the real question the American people have to ask is this. The the case against the drug industry's gouging is overwhelming, the evidence. We have all kinds of New England Journal of Medicine, medical professions, investigative reporters, all documenting this, like the price of insulin going up sky high, etc. So the real question to ask of the labor unions and the citizen groups, and, and how many people you have full time going up to Capitol Hill in an, in off, one office after another, and basically saying, "Look, you know, it's not only that your families are paying uh, these things; you got a nice insurance policy. You don't have to worry about that." But we're going to tell people back home if you don't sign on the dotted line, 
and say you're going to control drug prices. The drug prices in the U.S. are the highest in the world. They're by U.S. drug companies who have been risen to profits on the back of taxpayers uh, and free research and development. They don't dare do this to Canadians or to other countries in Egypt and so on, where the prices are a fraction. Uh, a fraction of what they are now. So these ingrates, these U.S. drug companies, <laughs> are basically gouging the very people that allowed them to grow, expand, and make a ton of money and huge compensation for the CEOs. So wake up, America. We know what needs to be done. You've got to get another 150 members of Congress on your side to add to the ones that are already on your side, and drug prices will be controlled. Uh, you and I are brothers in solidarity on the cause of the U.S. Post Office. You've helped educate me not only about uh, how disastrous it would be to cut postal service to five days a week, but in how Congress has actually been the postal service's worst enemy. A lot of people have recognized the problems that the postal service has had to contend with, especially in light of COVID. And uh, last week, the U.S. Senate actually passed the Postal Service Reform Act. Um, what's your take on this, Ralph? Is this a real reform? Is this something that's going to be very positive? Or is this just window dressing? Well, we've been pushing for real reform. We've written three books now. Uh, Chris Shaw just came out with a book called The First Class on the U.S. Postal Service. And this is a good first step. First of all, it gets rid of this ridiculous requirement since 2006 that no business or government agency is ever required to do. The Congress made the post office pre-fund health insurance for people over the next 75 years. People are not even born yet. And so it was a crushing $5 billion uh, tab every year, and it brought the post office to its knees. So they got rid of that. That's done. That's good. Finally. And the second is that they expanded some of the things the post office could do, like hunting and, uh, and fishing licenses. But they didn't allow the post office to transport beer and wine. That's pretty profitable. They left that with the competitors, to the, like UPS and, and, uh, and uh, some of the other big uh, competitors. So that was, a, uh, that was a miss there. And uh, anything did, uh, new on postal savings accounts? No, that, and that's why I say it's just a first step. There are four mm -hmm. pilot projects the post office has started, one in suburban Virginia, allowing people to cash checks and use uh, elementary financial transactions. They're testing it out. We had it up until 1967. The big banks got rid of it. People all over the country go in and put their savings in their local post office. They got rid of it around 1967. We're trying to get it back. It polls overwhelmingly. Why? Well, first of all, there are 30 million people that are unbanked because the banks don't want their business because they don't put enough money in the banks. And so what are they going to do? Be left with the payday loan rackets and the cash check rackets? That's what we're doing for these uh, low-income people. So I think uh, Governor Murphy of uh, New Jersey, you should have him on your program. He comes from Wall Street and he's gung-ho for Postal Savings Bank. Governor Murphy, just reelected. Yeah. Have him on the show. Finally, I, I, he's, Senator, he's State to. Senator James Sanders in Albany is going to have a hearing in late April, first one ever, on post on uh, public banking. So all the money that the government 
collects. Instead of go- being managed by Wall Street, bonds and so forth, they, they circulate their own money and save the taxpayer enormous Wall Street firms. Fees, Lastly, sir, uh, you ran for president uh, several times, was the Green Party candidate and twice as an independent candidate. Uh, you, I know this was at times a very frustrating experience for you. I know the obstacles that were placed in your way in terms of ballot access, in terms of media coverage, in terms of uh, being targeted by uh, not just political groups, but a lot of groups that you had benefited for many, many years through your work and uh, through your consumer activism. I'm curious, given that we're now looking at the prospect in 2024 of either a Trump-Biden rematch or maybe even a Trump-Hillary rematch, uh, all figures that are pretty polarizing in the country these days. I'm wondering, what do you see as the future of the independent political movement? In some respects, I would think a Trump versus Hillary contest part two is in some respects the best commercial ever for an independent candidate for president. Are you at all optimistic that we could see in our lifetime a um, a, a vibrant multi-party democracy or at least a, uh, a third-party watchdog to keep the major parties honest? Well, as you know, Frank, the, the, the uh, electoral system is rigged against uh, third parties getting on the ballot. So here's what has to happen. Uh, third party has got to appeal to all people. They can't engage in identity politics, just discriminatory injustice. They should deal with indiscriminate injustice, how all people are getting shafted, under, uh, uh, under-respected, excluded, ripped off, uh, so on. So, for example, the credit card business, they don't discriminate between uh, race and class and gender. They screw all people <laughs> with, their, with, with their gouging. The drug companies, they don't say, oh, we're just going to have... Uh, uh, high prices for some people, but not for all people. So you, you want to go for all these injustices that harm all Americans. That way you have a unified party that is not able to be divided and ruled. Saying, hey, the Democratic Party, they're for minorities and, and, uh, and politically correct talk and cancel culture. Uh, and it's quite simple what the formula is, because when people... Uh, where they live, work, and raise their families, they're less ideological. They want good schools, all of them, conservative, liberal. They don't want to be cheated. They want to be treated good in the workplace, paid a living wage, insured for for their ailments, uh, public bridges and and, uh, drinking water systems and roads and public transit to be put in repair instead of spending their money, all their taxpayer money, blowing up uh, uh, infrastructure in countries that never uh, threatened us, like in, in Iraq and and other countries. So it's, there's a huge unifying message here, and neither the Democrats nor Republicans are willing to engage in it because they want to appeal to their base. When you hear that word, their base, that means they are cutting off large numbers of people and hoping they can win in a winner-take-all, razor closed system, not to mention the Electoral College. So an independent party, uh, but it has to be well-funded. That's the second criteria, because when I was running, the press, the media didn't even cover what I was doing, even though I was well-known as a consumer advocate, and I was proposing things that had majority poll support among conservative and liberal Americans. But if, if they don't know you're running, 
How are they going right. to vote for you? Right. Okay, right. so uh, any independent party's got to be well-funded, and Bernie Sanders showed that you can do it uh, in small contributions by millions of people over the Internet. So in answer to your question, you get the right candidates. They're, they come uh, from the people. Uh, they know what they're talking about. They're honest. They can raise the money. Once you raise the money, then you get more media because the media uh, covers billionaire candidates who don't have a chance, but they won't cover candidates who have a track record of getting all kinds of health and safety uh, legislation through Congress and saving uh, millions of lives. But if they don't have the money, they will not cover them. Mr. Nader, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to our next conversation and uh, seeing you hopefully the next time you're in New York. And to give people hope, Frank, the other little paperback is Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. Read it, people. You'll see how people like you made great differences in improving our society. Catch it all at Nader.org. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. 